0: The United States Army Air Force is off for Berlin. Ready for war, sir. Ready for war. The magnificence of the courage and fortitude of the Korean people defies description.
1: Other battles were raging in the streets of Saigon. We today have concluded an agreement to end the war. ...and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. There has been unusual American air activity in the area of the Persian Gulf. We are determined to knock out Saddam Hussein's nuclear bomb potential. Afghanistan is a war that we had to fight and we have to win. This is Veterans Chronicles. For the next hour, join our honored roster of heroic soldiers, sailors, and aviators recalling and retelling their personal stories. From World War II... This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. ...to the present day. In
2: Afghanistan and Iraq, 50 million people are now living in freedom.
1: Now, the American Veterans Center and Radio America present Veterans Chronicles. Our guest this week on Veterans Chronicles is Jason Pock. He's a veteran of the United States Army. 2nd Infantry Division. He also served this nation in uniform in Afghanistan. And Jason, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You were born into a military family. In fact, you were born overseas as a result of your father's
3: service, mm-hmm. correct? That is, that is correct. I am a military brat. Uh, I was born on post uh, in Yongsan, in, in uh, one-to-one uh, military hospital there, uh, where my dad was stationed. Um, I was born in February 13th, 1989. Uh, my dad had an extended uh, period of service while he was in the army in Korea. Did your family have any connection all the way back to the Korean War? Um, I don't believe so. Nothing on record. Uh, but my grandfather, uh, my my dad's side, um, was that was around that time, and he he tells us a lot of stories about about that and all the hardships that they went through. And my dad is well, he was a uh, immigrant when he when he immigrated to the United States when he was ten years old. Um, so. They had the opportunity to go to New York, uh, Highland Falls to be exact, where at the gates of West Point. Um, And then my my dad ended up getting a commission, uh, not a commission, but an appointment to the academy and went through West Point.
1: It's a family tradition. Did you always have an interest in eventually either going to West Point or joining the Army?
3: At, At the time when I was making the decision on what I wanted to do, being a military back, being always surrounded by uh, kind of what my dad did, the relationships and bonds that he's formed while he was in the military, I kind of saw that, and I, I envied that, and I was like, maybe one day I want to be like that. My mom was a little bit reluctant, and my my dad was too at the time when I had told them that I did receive an appointment to the academy and I'd like to go to the academy. That's kind of what I want to pursue, uh, just because of the conflicts that we were involved when in. this was, uh, post 9/11. Obviously, worries them as parents, and I definitely understood that. But the opportunities that were presented to me at the time, uh, something for the greater good, something that'll make me better. Uh, I always thought, you know, going that route was going to help me out and establish a good foundation of uh, what I wanted to do later on in the future, even after the military, so I think it it did that, did just that.
1: You're also a fantastic athlete in high school, and you took that to West Point too, correct?
3: I did. I was actually recruited to play soccer, so I played for the Army soccer team, Uh, so we traveled around, played a lot of Ivy League uh, schools, and uh, the demand was pretty great in trying to balance academics and uh, physical as well as the military um, aspect of, of the school but um, I pulled through and I graduated so um, you know I, I to this day I, I love watching sports I'm, I'm an avid sports fan of um, so yeah I've always remained active and I, I still stay active today too um, you know we we'll are probably going into this later but I've uh, ever since I've my injury I've I've done a couple marathons. I've done the Boston Marathon in New York City. Wow. I've done a Detroit Marathon in hand cycling. Um, and I've started running uh, on, on, on blades, too, so we can talk about that a little bit later. But I think the most important thing I learned at the academy was time management and being able to prioritize and the importance of relationships. Uh, when, it, when it comes to, I think, being an effective leader, being a well-respected leader, being uh, someone that people truly look up to and want to uh, listen to, is just it, it really boils down to the very basic concept of being a good person uh, in order to be effective anywhere and that carried me through ranger school through all the military schools that I've been to even to Afghanistan um, if you're a good guy and guys respect you they'll follow you you know wherever you lead them pretty much and so I that's what I I learned at West Point from probably day one after graduation you went to both airborne and ranger school were those
1: mm-hmm areas you
3: are always interested in? Absolutely. Like when you're a cadet at West Point and among all the cadets, you know, going to like ranger school is kind of the, you know, hey, you should go to ranger school because it's not offered to everybody. It's only offered to a select uh, group of uh, cadets that choose the infantry branch. I myself was not an infantryman by trade. Uh, Upon graduation, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in field artillery in the field artillery branch. Um, So I actually had to compete for my slot to go into ranger school when you go through a school like ranger school you kind of you come out with a tab you have the mark of going through uh, tough a school as ranger school and and uh in a way it's a uh, first impression uh, type deal that you know when you're in front of your soldiers you know it kind of shows you that hey you've been to something difficult and you you, you know and uh, kind of but it shows that you've been through something tough and you know that's kind of why I, I seeked out ranger school airborne school i've i've always had an affinity for jumping out of planes so that that was always cool um in airborne school in particular, we, we did a couple of night jumps as well, which I thought was exhilarating. I had a good time at airborne school and uh, I wasn't actually assigned to an airborne unit at the time, but that's kind of what I wanted to do later on, maybe after my first deployment. So um, I actually uh, was assigned to be an assistant battalion fire support officer to the, the battalion fire support officer. So Immediately upon graduation from Ranger School, um, I reported to my first unit, which is in Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, and my boss at the time was the battalion fire support officer, Captain Kraft, and he had told me, hey, you know, we're, we're suiting up for deployment. Uh, we're getting ready to go to the National Training Center in Fort Irwin, California, pretty much preparation for deployment. I rushed my way up there, and, and that uh, was, was my official uh, duty, was, was kind of his, his right-hand man, and, and coordinating and managing all the fire support officers with, that are down to the company levels and all the soldiers that are assigned to the fire support element within an infantry battalion. Deployed to southern Afghanistan, uh, Panjway to be exact, which is the birthplace of Mullah Omar, who's the, uh, the Taliban who founded it. When I was sh- shot down to the company level to be a company fire support officer, we were co-located with a battalion, which was I-, I had no idea, and I really didn't know. what to say. I wasn't really scared. You know, I felt like I was. You know, I was pretty much training for, you know, five years prior to that. My battalion, our battalion headquarters, was was in the thick of it. A lot of the surrounding villages within our area of operations were right there. that were heavily influenced by the Taliban just because of the region that we were in, in Panjway. Yeah, we were relatively close, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Much interaction with the Afghan people? Uh, Yes, uh, pretty much on a daily basis. Um, We would conduct reconnaissance patrols, is what we called it. We always went out and on foot... Uh, because we were a striker brigade, uh, meaning we uh, had uh, strikers uh, to our disposal, and, and we used them, but we didn't use them that often just because of the, uh, the environment and the limited amount of roads. We only had one main road that were go- that went through our whole area, and the rest of it was all paths. I would say uh, 60 or 70% of the time we would head off to patrol on foot, and every time we were on patrol uh, we would always you know, see kids always running out asking for candy, or or they're infatuated by pens. Uh, they, it, It's it, because they're such a poor country, they're a war-torn country, and, and where we were at was pretty much in the middle of nowhere almost. I mean, they, these people didn't have access to electricity, um, very limited water, um, and to see like how infatu- infatuated these kids were with pens, they would just... Uh, ask mr mr pen and they would write something on their hand with their fingers as if to ask for a pen and the minute we give them one pen all the kids flock and want to grab that pen that we gave to that other kid and he ends up getting beat up or something but (laughs) you know and 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 candy they they love m&ms they love Kit kats Snickers, all that stuff that we can get our hands on and we try to so almost every time i made a made an effort to carry a little bit more pens or whatever you know hand it out and stuff but my area was was pretty difficult in terms of engaging with the locals a lot because um not too long before, about a year, I think it's been a year when I was there, uh, where we had a a U.S. service member, Uh, it was all over the news, Um, Staff Sergeant Bales, Mm -hmm. uh, he had left his uh, FOB or COP, his base, whichever, I think he was at a COP, and he had left and murdered um, I think like 20 or so uh, Afghan civilians, women, children, lit fire on their Houses and so that was my AO. That was our that was our area of operations. So we had a, and he all he wore th- he wore the same patch. He deployed out of Fort Lewis. He had the second ID patch. So that always that left a mark, uh, especially in our area. And and it, it kind of something like that. When that happens, it, it immediately um, it immediately kills the trust that has been built up since then. So started from the ground up, I think. And when we came in, there was still a little bit of they were a little bit hesitant, right? Um, but in regards to finding IDs or uh, pointing out Taliban or uh, people that you know meant harm to their village, uh, they would be open about and we'd get good intel. Um, just because they have kids around there, they don't want them out playing where there's an ID or an ID belt or a known id that's been planted. So they were, they were relatively good about, I think, uh, letting us know uh, and keeping us informed as much as they can but um, I think it, it was hard to uh, uh, kind of, w- I think what what it seemed like to them well, most of the locals, we tried to go out there and we had our Terps with us all the time, our interpreters and um, a lot of times we would try to uh, communicate to these people that we're here to help and we're not here to impose impose anything else but help like we were want to make your way of life better we want to kick out the bad guys you you know and and to some to most locals I think it was you know hey it you know the Taliban come in and we they kind of brainwash them you know they they coerce them into doing things uh, whether it be through threats of their family or with money that they don't have they offer up money and and they'll get young kids to do stuff that that uh, mm-hmm. that will hurt coalition forces and uh, it was a very unfortunate thing to see a lot of times. Um, but I think majority, and, and we worked pretty closely with the ANA, the Afghan National Army, and, and the local police. Um, we helped train them up on our weapon systems and make them um, as sufficient as possible in order for them to take lead. Um, when I was there, they weren't on, in the lead. We tried to incorporate them into our patrols as much as possible. Uh, it was uh, It was pretty strict guidance that we had to have uh, an Afghan national, whether it be an A.N.A. Or, or police, embedded within our patrol um, when we went out. Um, so, kind of teaching them the way and how we we did things, so that they could do it. From what I understand today, they are in the lead, obviously, and uh, they um, are doing things where we are not in bed with them, and they're doing things on their own.
1: So, Jason, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on Veterans Chronicles.
0: Veterans Chronicles is now podcasting at radioamerica.org. Log on to our website, click on the podcasting icon, and look for Veterans Chronicles. Once there, follow the instructions on your computer to subscribe to our podcast. You'll always find our most recent program on the Veterans Chronicles podcast in addition to past programs from our archives. The Veterans Chronicles podcast, free and online at radioamerica.org. Also available on Apple iTunes.
1: You're listening to Veterans Chronicles, presented by the American Veterans Center and the Radio America Network. Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Karambas, honored to be joined today by Jason Park, retired U.S. Army captain. We're going to get to the day Uh, that changed your life it was december 12 2012 Mm -hmm. explain what your duties were that day and and what happened
3: that day was uh, it started out unlike any other day Uh, i was a company fire support officer to be exact it was a routine patrol at the time that i was injured when we had deployed uh, i was actually in charge of four forward observers i'm sorry that were directly reported to me and were assigned down to the platoon. So within an infantry company, there's four platoons, and then an FO was assigned to each platoon. A platoon leader would usually be a lieutenant, which was the rank that I was um, at the time. Prior to d- deployment, one of my FOs uh, realized he had a really bad headache and went to the emergency room. It was known that he had a brain cyst, so he had to go into emergency surgery, and this was the night before we were getting on a plane and go to Afghanistan. So uh, we deployed without an FO. Myself and my NCO covered down for that platoon every time they were out on patrol. So I direct, directly reported to the company commander. Platoons rotate in and out of, of duties within our responsibility, right? So almost every time uh, one of our platoons within our company went out on patrol, I was pretty much going out. At that rate, I was going out maybe three or four times a week. That particular day, like I said, was unlike any other. and we were actually tasked out to escort an engineer unit. They were building roads, humanitarian aid. You know, They wanted some support from the infantry guys, just in case something bad had would, would go down. Going nearby a village that we had not been into yet, it was known uh, from the prior unit that we actually replaced that that village had a lot of suspicious activity in it, and they have confirmed that Taliban have been operating uh, within there. But they were operating very close by to there, these engineers. So we had um, escorted them, set up in our support by fire positions. And, and then I, I was on the radio. As a fire supporter, I'm monitoring multiple radios, multiple frequencies. Italian had relayed that there was insurgent activity nearby from our location, I think roughly about maybe six, 700 meters away. They had given the green light for an air strike to occur. I would relayed that to the platoon leader and to all of our guys and we had to do what's called a battle damage assessment, Uh, meaning every time we conduct an airstrike of some sort or we're involved in any kind of troops in contact, it it, it finishes out, we do a battle damage assessment where we cordon off the area, we go see the damage and see who's been killed or who's been injured and um, make sure the locals don't go out and, and a lot of times what they would do is they would go out and grab what's left of whatever body part and they put in their little thingies and run off and to prevent that you know that's that was our guidance and we had to do that. I distinctly remember talking to the helicopter pilots and telling them that we do need to do a ground BDA. Um, They sounded a little bit hesitant saying hey you know where we conducted the airstrikes a little bit suspicious suspicious area we don't recommend going on foot or there but it was guidance from higher I think this was a brigade level guidance that every time we did we we need to and I, I remember saying hey okay we still need to go over there and and re- recover what's left of, of, of them and cordon off that area. And I, I got some assistance from the helicopter pilots and where we needed to go, and we set on foot, and, and we were on the way. The lead man was, I remember, Specialist Hadley has a counter-ID equipment. Uh, we call it the minehound. Uh, it's a metal detector. It just detects any kind of signature of, of metal, wires, uh, whatever, and he's, he was specifically trained on that uh, to find IEDs and we always maintain a single file line. We always marked off what's called the path of life, meaning it hasn't been cleared from the minehound, and so don't step outside of the path of life. And the squad leader behind him, Sergeant Mack, was the second, and I was the third behind him, uh, telling them pretty much where to go, where to turn, and where the body was. We also actually led with a dozer vehicle. We had another squad leader in there in front of Hadley that would create a path that would push out the dirt and, uh, that we could walk in. The squad leader who was in the the dozer vehicle will hit the road Hadley cleared the mound that the dozer vehicle caused which like I said pushes out the sand I think he cleared that mound he stepped on there and then hit the road and then I was a third guy and the last thing I remember in terms of that specifically when I stepped on it I think I stepped on that mound and it, it went off and you know immediately when it happened you get I got I got knocked back um, my right hand was with my rifle my left hand was out I'm also a left left partial amputee. I lost a couple fingers and my radius was fractured. and everything. But when I, I got kicked back, initially I didn't realize that my legs were gone. Um, like the initial maybe 15, 20 seconds was my eardrums were blown out. I can't hear anything. I just hear a flat line beep. I hear, and then as, as a couple seconds go by, I can start hearing people yelling, uh, yelling who's hurt or who's hit and what's going on. And, and I just remember starting Mack starting uh, and then maybe the others the other squad leader behind who was starting Donahoe coming up to me and saying sir you're going to be all right and um, pulling me to uh, pulling me back per se by my my IBA my Kevlar and um, and then s- starting to apply first aid. I remember the first thing like I said the first thing I noticed was my hand it was blood there was blood everywhere but it was uh, because it was a really sandy dusty area just big puff of sand still, still around and so I remember looking at my hand, I was like, oh, something really bad ha- happened. I hope, you know, no one else is hurt. And next thing I know, they're applying tourniquets to both of my extremities. From my remember, I think there are two or three on each extremity, and they put two on my arm as well. Um, and then as time kind of kept passing on, I was fully conscious throughout the thing. I was going in and out. I was losing blood at a very alarming rate.
1: Jason, let me pause
3: you right there. Yeah, sure. When yeah. we come back, we'll finish your story. Sounds good.
0: Veterans Chronicles is presented by the American Veterans Center, an educational foundation dedicated toward preserving the legacy of America's servicemen and service women of all generations. The center is home to two organizations, the World War II Veterans Committee and the National Vietnam Veterans Committee, each working to tell the stories of their respective veterans. In addition to this program, the American Veterans Center is also the primary sponsor of the National Memorial Day Parade, held annually in Washington, D.C. For more information on the American Veterans Center and its programs, visit the Center's website at www.americanveteranscenter.org or call 703-302-1012, 703-302-1012. From Radio America and the American Veterans Center, this is Veterans Chronicles.
1: We're back on Veterans Chronicles. We're right in the middle of the obviously very dramatic story (laughs) from Jason Pak, a veteran of the US Army, veteran of Afghanistan. And
3: when I finally realized that something bad happened to my lower extremities, I just remember the blood just rushing down. Uh, I'm in above the knee on the right and below the knee on the left. So I did step on the ID with my right leg, hence I'm a higher amputee on the right. and then the left, I guess, caught the bad, just caught it, I guess. And uh, anyway, because your femoral artery is on the right side, I remember like, my heart beating to, like, my blood coming out. It was really weird. It was like, dook, 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 and I can see the blood coming, in they were tightening the tourniquet and tightening it. And then I remember at a certain point they tightened it, and the blood just stopped coming out, and... I was getting really cold and I guess like I, I was going in and out at that point because I was losing blood so fast but when it stopped I, I realized when it stopped and, and I kind of knew hey I think I'm gonna be all right so I remember getting on to um, getting onto a stretcher and then I remember getting you backed out uh, I remember talking to my guys telling them like don't worry about me or you know be you guys are gonna be fine like you know it was it was our first like big casualty within our unit too um, we had known that there were a couple guys from sister units in the area that were getting hit and, and whatnot, but within our unit that was the real first big injury. Um, fortunately, you know, I was the only one hurt severely. I think some guys got knocked back from the blast, but because, like I said, our TTPs and how we were well spaced out, we were able to mitigate or prevent uh, more guys getting severely injured. And so, uh, yeah, and, and once those were on, the tourniquets were on, they were tight enough to where it stopped the bleeding. Uh, it was put onto a stretcher, uh, and I remember going into the striker and and going to the closest um, uh, checkpoint where we could have our medevac bird land. Uh, my guys were on it. like they In terms of right when it happened, our guys got on the radio immediately and, and called the medevac. Fortunately, medevac was on the ground. Or I was—I think he was in the air and, and on the ground and landed before we even got to the checkpoint. So uh, I remember getting off the striker, uh, being evacuated off of the striker, and the medevac bird already being there. I remember seeing my first sergeant uh, from the company, First Sergeant Cardona, uh, talking to him, saying, hey, hey "I'm going to be all right, First Sergeant. Make sure everyone else is fine. Um, don't worry about me." And so, and then I remember getting on the bird and, and getting evacuated out and speaking to the. Uh, uh, the medics on the on the medevac bird, and them asking me where I was from, you know, what day it was, and all that stuff. And I didn't get hit with morphine until I hit the medevac bird, I believe. Um, in terms of pain, I mean, it was painful, but it, I don't think it was, uh, you know, it was, the adrenaline was pumping so fast, you know, that it, it's hard to it, you know, describe it, you know, it's just, uh, it just goes. Um, uh, but I do remember getting off the medevac, bird getting put on a stretcher, rolling into the OR in Kandahar, and them ripping off all of my uh, my, my uniform and, and then sticking me with needles, and then that's when I kind of fell under and putting me under anesthesia. So, and then uh, I woke up two hours after my first surgery, I think in a couple hours. Uh, I remember uh, General Abe Abrams oh, who was my RC, was the RC South Division commander uh, at the time. Um, gave me, awarded me my Purple Heart at the time and I woke up to my boss, my battalion fire support officer there, the chaplain, uh, the battalion commander, uh, battalion sergeant major, all the guys were there and um, asked about how the guys were, if they're fine um, and then yeah and that was a ceremony and then that was kind of off to from there on I, I think I did another surgery too there and then I got evac out too uh, Bagram Air Force Base and, and received a couple surgeries there um, and then to launch to Germany. One thing that you know General Abrams had asked me hey do you need anything and, uh, you know right at, r- around the time the Purple Heart Ceremony was and I said sir I actually want to call my dad let him know that I'm gonna be fine. Uh, I kind of understand as a leader as a lieutenant I understood the protocols and how they notify significant others or family members and i uh, fortunately, luckily, I did call him, and I made it happen. I told the general I wanted to call my dad and he did, and, and we spoke on the phone and you know a couple weeks down the road when I was at Walter Reed and I was actually in front of my dad talking. I remember him telling me that you know, good thing that you had called uh, when you did because about a couple hours before that, like two or three hours before we had a, a call from the Army, I guess the personnel, uh, whoever notifies. Um, The next of kin of of what had happened that they had told my dad that I was severely injured in combat. Um, uh, They didn't they couldn't disclose to what extent my injuries were nor could they tell me tell my dad if I was going to survive or not because it was a time when I was in surgery. So I I mean hearing that I, I knew that was kind of the way they they notified initially and so I wanted to make sure that with a phone call through General Abrams that he would be notified as soon as possible and You know, let them know that, you know, I'll be fine. I'll see you guys over at Walter Reed. And so, yeah. And then, like I said, from launch school and then to to Walter Reed in Bethesda, it took me, I think, four days to get there. Wow. Um, So from December 12th, uh, and the day it happened, I got to Walter Reed on December 16th. So pretty quick.
1: Pretty quick indeed. Mm -hmm. I think the thing most people are going to be so amazed by is Mm -hmm. you obviously knew, even if you didn't know the full extent of your injuries when you were So the first thing you wanted to know was how the rest of the guys in your unit were doing.
3: Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's that's all I cared about. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how are you coping with your injuries? Are you doing all right? You know, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, but I always say, you know, don't be sorry, you know. And, and if you're going to thank someone, thank those guys out there. You know, I'm happy and I'm glad that I uh, bared... The responsibility to be a double amputee and I'm glad I was the one that stepped on that IED that day. Um, You know like I was telling earlier telling you earlier I was the one that was telling these guys where to go Um, you know if one of those other guys one of my guys had stepped on that IED had suffered the injuries that I had suffered or even worse God forbid lose their life. Me as a leader, me as a lieutenant, the one that's out there calling the shots and telling them where to go I I feel like I wouldn't have been able to bear the guilt of that right you know if I came back and knowing that Sergeant Mac or Specialist Hadley or one of those guys where it was going to be an amputee for the rest of their life you know me as a leader I I, you know so that's why I tell people that you know that might sound a little bit arrogant but you know I'm glad that it was me and not them um I would press the reset button and do it all over again if I if I could um and uh So yeah, I mean, it's it's those guys out there. If it wasn't for those guys, I wouldn't be here today, sharing my story and being able to articulate what I'm articulating. Um, So, so yeah, like I said, it's really all about them. And the hardest thing that I had to do was uh, once I was, and so you know, before I even wanted to see everybody else to see that, I I was just like, oh man, this is gonna be tough. And so you know, I gave gave a speech. It was very emotional. I, I could remember see all the spouses like crying and tearing up and some of the guys getting a little bit emotional too. Um, but I pulled through and then after, you know, and that was kind of a, a highlight of my, my life, right, to be back and give a speech to my guys and give credit to them that the real reason why I'm here is because of them and how well they were prepared and how well they handled themselves overseas. So, so yeah, that was, that's my kind of story on that.
1: How tough, you mentioned before that you actually felt like it was a good thing that you, of anybody in the unit, stepped on the IED. Was it tough mentally coming to grips with the fact that eventually you were going to have to get prosthetics, learn how to use them, and and kind of learn how to walk again?
3: You know, I I think with most most guys that suffer amputations and loss of limbs uh, would agree with me saying that you go through a little bit of a dark time initially when it first happens and you're, you're recovering in the hospital bed because you have a lot of time to think. You have a lot of time to think about, you know, oh, man, how is my life going to be different? You know, I was always aware that there were guys that were losing limbs and whatnot, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it would actually be like to be them, right? You know, you could only you could only see those kind of news stories on, on TV and, and, and read articles about them, but to actually be in the shoes of one of them, um, or in the prosthetics, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 realized that, hey, you know, this is, this is something that's, you know, you could think of it as a setback, but for me, I, I convinced myself that it was going to, it was going to be something that's going to make me stronger and make me better, uh, that I was going to make this, uh, I wasn't going to make this define me. I was going to, I wasn't going to make, uh, this, um prevent me from doing the things that I love doing. Um, You know, we're really fortunate to be in the day and age that we are where prosthetics are are very advanced to a point where uh, you can do anything, um, whether it be skiing, mono skiing, you know, you can do water sports, jet skiing, cycling, you can do upright cycling no matter uh, you know, no matter what, with how advanced uh, the technology is nowadays and it it just gets better and better and so um, and another thing that I would have to say is, a lot of the guys, uh, my fellow like wounded guys that that came before me, would come in and, you know, after the first two weeks, they would come in and talk to me and tell me, "Hey, sir, everything's going to be fine." You know, you know, the worst was when was when a guy named Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, who is a quadruple amputee, he came in. He had this energetic, crazy, awesome personality, and he scared my mother with this his crazy arm prosthetic and spinning at 360 and all this stuff but he came in and told me hey sir like you're gonna be fine jokingly you only lost two legs and a couple fingers I lost all four of my my limbs but there's nothing stopping me from what I want to do today I'm here with my baby girl I'm here with my wife I still have my brain and and, and I'm doing awesome things and he came and walked in with these products and this is before like like I said it was only like two or three weeks after I was injured and to see that is is a, was a shocker I was like oh man and then after those type of visits and he wasn't the only one there are numerous uh, you know I can name so many that that came and helped you know gave me that extra push and guys that are in my shoes and saying that you're going to be fine it's all downhill from here it's not not an uphill climb um so I realized hey it's not that bad and and here I am today and I'm working full time and I wear suit a uh, suit every day to work and more than half the time, people don't even realize that I'm a double amputee and, and at all. So, um, like I said, it's, it's, it was something in the beginning where you kinda, me being a soccer player in college and everything, I kinda, every time I do watch a soccer game or I see soccer on TV, I kinda look and I say, oh man, I can't really play like I used to, but if I really wanted to, I, could, I probably could play, but just not as well. But um, aside from that, like I said, there's really no other reason for me to feel sorry for myself. I did what I did. It was my job. It was my duty. Nothing more. Were you planning to have a career in
0: the
1: service initially?
3: Uh, you know what? I really did. I, I wanted to actually go to and be assigned in the Ranger Battalion. I wanted to, to transfer over to, uh, I think it's 2nd Ranger Battalion. I think they're located at Fort Lewis. and uh, I wanted to put my packet together while I was in deployment and that was kind of the career path that I was going to go into. Because I had went to Ranger Squad, he had a tab as a as a fire supporter. Um, I think at the time when I was going through, there was a higher demand for fire supporters to come into the Ranger, Ranger Battalion. And as a, as a fire support lieutenant with a Ranger tab and a deployment under his belt, I think it would have been a good uh, leeway into that. So I, I actually did want to stay in, in the military. But you know, I always tell myself that an opportunity and one door closes and three or four open at the same time. And it really did. Um, so, unfortunately, I am not able to do what I always wanted to do um, in terms of staying in the military and serving with my guys and being down at that level. So if I'm playing a small role, if any at all, I feel like I'm doing something for the greater good in a way. So, Jason, it's an amazing story.
1: Thank yeah, you very much for cool. sharing it. Anytime. Thank you. Jason Pak, veteran of the U.S. Army, veteran of Afghanistan, joining us today on Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Columbus Thanks for listening.